0: Guess what I'm wearing, Kyle?
1: Uh, I, I don't know. What are you wearing?
0: Red, white, and blue shirt. Guess what else I'm wearing, Kyle?
1: What, what else are you wearing, Matt?
0: Captain America socks. Nice. Guess what else I'm wearing, Kyle?
1: <sighs> what else are you wearing, Matt?
0: <laughs> I'm wearing my Wiley Drake for president shirt. Cue <laughs> the jingle, baby. You know what time it is, time for another train wreck. Welcome to Not Another Baptist Podcast, a podcast exploring church revitalization, church planting, and other Southern Baptist goodies for your ear holes. I'm Matt Hensley, the pastor of Mayhill Baptist, and I eat waffles every day that
1: ends in why. <laughs> I'm Kyle Beerman, the pastor of First Baptist Church in Alamogordo, and I don't eat waffles every day or even really care to. Uh, But we're both pastoring fantastic churches in southern New Mexico, wading through the waters of church revitalization whilst trying not to drown.
0: But hey, we get to do this podcast to tell everyone what
1: not to do as we learn from all of Kyle's mistakes. (laughs) That's right. And this podcast is sponsored by the Christian Standard Bible. So you could say that we're the official podcast of the Word of God. Uh, We love the CSB because of its blend of readability and accuracy and encourage you to check it out at csbible.com after the show. Indeed, but for now, let's dive right into the dumpster fire
0: that is extra lit today as we welcome Dr. Russell Moore to the show. Dr. Moore is the head of the ERLC and has a full head of hair indeed. And y'all all know why we're doing this. My little buddy here, Kyle. Non alcoholic beerman famously stood before the messengers of the annual meeting to ask a question of Dr. Moore and, well, didn't.
1: Yeah. And not only that, um, In in my nervousness, I meant to reference the ridiculous motion to defund the ERLC. And instead, I referenced the ridiculous motion to defend the ERLC. So, you know, whatever, tomatoes, tomatoes or something like that. Uh, Dr. Moore, let's kick this off with a question from a special guest and a fixture of the SBC meetings every year. Well, until this year. My name is Wiley Drake from the First Southern Baptist Church of Buena Park, California, and the Wiley Drake Show, and we have accumulated from around the world a two-part question that I was asked to bring to you, dear sir, today. That first part of the question is simply this. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And if so, how did that come about?
2: I My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's that's the case. I've uh, been a Christian since I was about 12 years old.
0: Wonderful. Well, that is a load off for sure, because I threw on my Captain America socks and my red, white, and blue shirt and my Wiley Drake uh, for president shirt just for uh, this. But as we get going... Tell us a little bit about your family, what brought you to the ERLC and the purpose the ERLC aims to serve.
2: Well, uh, my immediate family, my wife uh, Maria and I have been married for uh, next year will be 25 years. And we have five sons uh, ranging from age 17 down to age six. Uh, Our first two sons we adopted from a Russian orphanage when they were about a year Uh, old Uh, and they're now they're now 17 years old both of them Uh, so that's our that's our immediate family Uh, the path to the ERLC was kind of a a long wild providential sort of run like most of our our lives are Uh, and we came here five years ago and really what the ERLC uh, exists to do is really two things one of them is to equip uh, churches and Christians and families uh, to think through how to follow Christ in discipleship, basically how to take up one's cross and, and follow him and think through with wisdom uh, what's the right thing to do in a, in a range of, of uh, issues from how do we care for orphans and widows in our communities to um, uh, how do we think about end-of-life uh, decisions uh, all the way over uh, to what's the, what's the right way for me to think through uh, counseling someone who's in a, in a difficult marriage, all of those sorts of, of questions we, we deal with and, and grapple with. And then secondly, to speak from the churches to the outside world uh, on those matters. So a lot of the time I'm dealing with unbelievers who are asking, you know, why do Christians think the way that they do? Uh, what do Christians think about this, that, or the other? Uh, which I'm happy to talk about. Uh, and then also to pivot that conversation back to the gospel.
0: Awesome. Well, before we jump into some more future-specific questions, there was some considerable buzz leading up to, during, and even after the MLK50 conference. Is there a way y'all sought to, uh, I guess, separate the man and some of his accomplishments from some of his character flaws? Is it time past something else? In, in other words, how did y'all come to the decision to host that conference?
2: Well, I mean first of all, the conference wasn't about Dr. King, although that would have been a perfectly uh, reasonable thing to do uh and I think there were many people who did have conferences that were sort of historical uh looks at King. Uh, what we were seeking to do is to come together at the uh, the very place in the very city where Dr. King was murdered uh, fifty years ago and to ask what has happened since then in terms of the way that we're applying the gospel uh, to racial reconciliation and justice. Why did so much of the white evangelical church not just get this issue wrong in 1968 and the years leading up to 1968, but get this issue wrong in a particularly devilish kind of way uh, that, that has not just bad social consequences, but also horrific eternal consequences uh, to those who uh, refuse to repent of sin, uh, and so where are we? Where are we now, uh, coming out of 1968? And that's an a, a crucially important uh, conversation to have when you have um, you have right now a situation where many people treat uh, the way that the Bible speaks about uh, racial bigotry and racial hatred. The way that uh, that others treat issues of uh, sexuality, uh, which is to put asterisks around what the scripture uh, what the scripture teaches, and to say, "Well, that doesn't really apply to me," uh, or "That doesn't really apply to us." We think the the whole counsel of the Word of God applies to to all of us, um, and that's that's one of the reasons why we even now. I mean, it's it's amazing to me. To look back, I can see the, the sort of mail that my predecessor in the 1960s uh, received, uh, just blatant white supremacy. Um, that's not all that surprising if, if one knows American history, uh, but it's really surprising to still get the exact same kind of mail and the exact same kind of arguments. So uh, you, you have, uh, you have white supremacy still existing and then you also have the way that white supremacy protects itself which is to often not acknowledge what the real problem is but to say well we shouldn't talk about that mm-hmm. uh, because that's somehow cordoned off from what God has revealed to us that's a that's a crucial crucial problem yeah. wow.
1: mm-hmm. um So right now in the SBC, it seems like every entity is working through how to engage younger pastors while continuing uh, to work with an older generation of pastors who who oftentimes have differing perspectives. Mm -hmm. So how does the ERLC uh, or since the ERLC often deals with politics, uh, which is a volatile area and, and it seems like over the past three years or so, it's, it's, it's gotten more volatile. Mm-hmm. Um, h- how, how do you balance that tension that, that to an extent, it seems to exist kind of generationally um, in, in the SBC?
2: Yeah. You know, I, I think I would have agreed with you um, maybe even three months ago, two months ago uh, that the divide there is generational. Um, I really don't uh, as, as much because, Here's what I think um, has happened within the SBC. I think in the SBC, there is an illusion of disunity that doesn't actually exist. Uh, And there's there's an illusion of generational uh, sort of divide that doesn't really exist. And here's why I I say that. Uh, Is there a generational uh, transfer? Yes. Are there generational differences? Yes. But I think what we have seen i mean look at the look at the s b c uh, annual meeting this year uh every single vote that that came to the floor, every single discussion that came to the floor, the convention was speaking at least seventy percent uh in the same direction on virtually everything that's there uh that's not all done with either uh seventy year olds or with uh, twenty five year old church planters that's that's everybody working uh, working together I think we have a small group of people in the SBC that like to fight and want to fight and are going to fight no matter what uh, no matter what's going on and no matter who's who's there they're the people who are always talking about fighting and everybody else is just sort of um, going along loving each other and cooperating and and working together but it's easy to think oh these these five or six people uh, are huge when they're really not i mean if they were if they were that huge they would have been able to do a lot uh uh, they would have been able to do different things (laughs) than what they've been able to do uh other than than merely talk and so i don't i really think that if you look at uh at older southern baptists i actually think that most uh, most older Southern Baptists that I encounter are, uh, you, you know, your fifties and sixties uh, uh, pastors and leaders are really not that different, and really not uh, in some sort of uh, Saul throwing the spirit David uh, sort of sort of mentality. Uh, so that's sort of a, a a shift that I have even had just looking around and realizing, wait a minute, uh, sort of the caricature that uh, that there's a lot of sort of angry, uh, lashing out, uh, older people just really isn't true. There are a few of them and they're the ones who talk about it all the time, but most people aren't there.
0: In, in other words, Kyle, you're wrong.
2: <laughs> well, I, I, I'm, say, I'm saying that I was kind of wrong about that too, because it's, it's easy. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, in American life generally, um most people are not going to uh alert the media that they're they're praying for and cooperating with with people in, yeah, in, instead the people who do that are the people who want to fight i mean it goes down to the uh, there there was a long time when one of the biggest stresses in my life was worrying about the calvinist uh non-calvinist divide and that this was going to be some big explosive uh, sort of uh, sort of event uh, in the SBC didn't happen, and why didn't it happen? Because you had a you had a small group of really really angry anti-Calvinists and a small group of really really angry Calvinists who you know really wanted to see everyone using the 1689, and if they weren't, they were somehow compromising. But those were tiny, tiny little silos of people. Most people, whether they were Calvinist or or non-Calvinist, really did love each other and and want to want to work together and get along with one another. You just don't typically write manifestos uh, saying that you know, you just do A it.
0: Manifesto of unity. Yeah, that's uh, great. Uh, I still prefer saying Kyle is wrong. So let me just oh, have okay. that. Uh, but, but we are recording this interview the day after Independence Day. And every year around this time, there seems to be at least an online dust up about patriotic services and their place in the church. And some of our churches have to wrestle with that. How can pastors best show Honor for our country and being grateful for the freedom that we have there, while at the same time not creating an idol out of the country.
2: Well, I think the best way to do it is to is to think about the country the way that one thinks about one's family. Uh, so I've been working on a on a book project um, this year uh, dealing with family, and one of the things I've had to to address at the same time is that you have. You have people with different sorts of problems. So you have some people who have a lack of um, concern or a lack of gratitude uh, for family, uh, and they they dismiss it, they neglect it, they, they ignore it, and they need to be called back to say, hey, listen, this is why the Bible says that family is important and here are your responsibilities as someone within, within the context of a family. And then you have other people who make family first and family becomes such a priority that family is first in their minds in a way that actually ends up destroying their families because you have this sense of, well, my marriage has to completely uh, resolve everything and fill every need that's in my life. My children have to uh, live out all of my expectations that I have for them. And then when that doesn't happen in that way, uh, there's a sense of, well, then uh, th- there must be some other family or, or some other spouse or something else that can, that can fill that. Well, they've made a vi- an idol, and their idol is going, to, is going to disappoint them. When you think about even the word patriotism comes from the, the root word father. And so uh, one has to do the exact same thing that the Bible tells us about one's mother and father, uh, honor your father and mo- your father and mother. That is a, a, a command that is given in Scripture. Show gratitude uh, for the, the, the people who have brought you to where you are. And no one who does not uh, is not willing to leave mother and father for my sake is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus says both of those two things are true. So when we think about uh, when we think about gratitude for our country and gratitude for the, the blessings that God has given to us being situated in this in this place, if that's not there, then there's a, a lack of, of gratefulness uh, ultimately to God. If there's not a sense of I need to be praying for uh, the people in my country and those who are leading my country, then there's a there's a, a disobedience to God that is that is there. But. We're in a unique sort of situation in American life uh, right now, where uh, country seems more real to people uh, than the gospel does. And the country seems to often be the end that we're working toward, and the gospel is the means to get there. Uh, And so that's one of the reasons why Uh, You can even see situations where people will tear up at uh, Lee Greenwood uh, singing uh, God Bless the USA in a way that they don't uh, feel that sort of of resonance with holy, holy, holy. Well, why? Because the the country and all of the things that come along with that sort of tribal identity seem more real to them uh, than the kingdom of God. Uh, so that has to be deconstructed as well to say we are Americans, those of us who are Americans, we're Americans, yes, but we can only be good Americans if we're not first Americans. Mm. We're first citizens of of the kingdom of heaven, and we're first part of a, a global body of Christ that's connected to the body of Christ in heaven. Then uh, a- after that, we have priorities that are set where we're able to be good Americans. So when it comes to a, uh, you know, sometimes you have people who go into a church and the church has had uh, some sort of uh, God and country celebration uh, every single year. What I typically uh, counsel those people is, you know, don't come in and just get rid of all of that necessarily. Uh, instead there are ways to have in that service things the Bible calls us to do, which is thankfulness and gratitude to God for having the freedom to be able to to live as Christians uh, and and to pray uh, for those who are leaders and and those who are in authority without turning the church into an outpost of some temporal uh, nation that is good. I think America is the greatest uh, country that's ever been on the face of the planet, but uh, the United States of America is not going to outlast uh, the judgment of God. Kingdom of God will. And so sometimes you have to, sometimes you just have to ask, you know, C.S. Lewis taught us, and I think it's one of the, one of the truest things I've ever seen, that the devil doesn't send errors one by one, but two by two uh, on either side of the truth. And so you have to come in and say, where, where is the problem in, in my uh, congregation? Is my congregation so withdrawn from their neighbors and has such a lack of ingratitude for where God has placed them that we need to help them to, to get there? Or is my congregation so bound up in its American identity that it's not able to see how it fits in the, in the global reality or the cosmic reality of the kingdom of God? then I need to emphasize that.
1: Um, since we're talking about the country, one of the, uh, obviously the big things that's on the radar in our nation right now is the retirement of Supreme Court Justice uh, Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And kind of the big discussion surrounding that, his retirement and the, um, the opportunity that President Trump has to appoint another Supreme Court justice centers around Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. And and there's a lot of discussion about that potentially being overturned. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what would that mean for the United States as a whole if if Roe v. Wade were to be overturned?
2: Well, uh, Roe Roe v. Wade uh, should be overturned as quickly as possible as a as a matter of of simple justice. Uh, Roe v. Wade is a convoluted, incoherent. Uh, ruling with all kinds of implications that would mean, if you just look at constitutional interpretation, if you applied the principles of Roe versus Wade to anything else, you could come up with whatever, uh, with whatever sort of uh, outcome you, you wanted, uh, just on the basis of sheer uh, wish magic. Uh, so just as a constitutional matter, Roe versus Wade is a train wreck, which even the Supreme Court recognizes, which is why they tried to salvage it in some way in in Casey uh, in 1992 by saying, well, don't pay attention to those things, pay attention to these things in, in Roe versus Wade. But also because of the, the real human injustice um, that comes along with Roe versus Wade that essentially rules people out as persons uh, in the United States from those basic protections uh, articulated in the Declaration of, of Independence. So that needs to that needs to go. Now, what I think some Christians assume is that even if Roe versus Wade goes, then that means that the abortion issue is gone and the abortion issue is settled. That's that's not what happens. Um, if the Supreme Court were to come in and, and say Roe versus Wade is, it no longer stands uh in tota then what that means is that that's returned then to the states uh so you would have some states that would um, that would outlaw abortion. you would have some states that would restrict abortion uh, you would have and then you would have other states New York and Massachusetts and California and whatever that would still have at this point laissez-faire abortion laws, and the debate would just go back to the, and then there would be other states where you would have, um, I think sometimes some outcomes that we might not be able to predict in in one way or the other. So it's not a matter of here's the vote and now the issue is settled. It's just a, it's a matter that Roe versus Wade is preventing the people from even doing anything uh, or the way the court's interpreting Roe versus Wade, doing anything. To restrict uh, lay faire fair abortion.
0: And let's say, let's just say, all of that is on the horizon. That it gets overturned and it goes back to the states. I'm sure uh, New Mexico will continue its uh, same same path. Yeah. California, as you mentioned, some of those other states will will still have their same uh, path. But let's say Texas or or some of the more conservative states. Uh, you know, goes back and they outlaw it altogether. How should churches then uh, prepare for 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 that? How how should churches prepare for it? And and perhaps what should they be doing now, even you know, as we wait that to happen? What how, how do we prepare? What do we do now in regards to that?
2: Well, I think the the main thing is we have to recognize that the uh, abortion struggle is not is not one. Uh, battlefield. It's, it's multiple, it's a multi-pronged uh, sort of reality. So there's a legal piece of it uh, that, that, has to, that has to happen. And we ought to be working toward that. There's then uh, a legislative uh, part of that. So state legislatures are going to uh, have to come in and start thinking about, um, thinking about various issues as it relates to, to restricting abortion. But then beyond that, there's the cultural question of how do we come in and articulate uh, human dignity and also how do we uh, minister to people who are in uh, very real uh, situations of crisis? A lot of churches are doing that right now and doing it really, really well. Uh, But we have to all uh, be, be doing that because what I worry about, and one of the reasons that I don't get you know, there was a there was a poll that was done um, a couple of days ago that said that 51 percent of americans uh, are pro-choice and 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 support roe versus wade i don't panic about that and the same reason i don't get all exuberant when other polls come out and say well most americans are are pro-life and i don't think those polls tell us anything uh there was a there was a, a feminist uh, leader abortion rights activist years ago who said uh, most americans are pro life with three exceptions rape incest and my situation hmm. and i think i think that is really sobering and chilling yeah. because uh, i i heard a uh, testimony from a woman who had worked uh, in an abortion clinic uh, years ago and she said that most of the people in the waiting room at her abortion clinic were not pro-choice. Mm. They were pro-life people, mostly evangelicals and Roman Catholics, who voted pro-life, would have posted pro-life things on their Facebook pages. But when they find themselves in this time of pregnancy, then they're going and hiding in the abortion clinic to say, who can, who can help me? And she said, the, the Catholic young women are saying, I know this is taking a human life. I know this is sin and I'm going to go to confession. And the evangelical young women are saying, I know this is taking a human life. I know this is sin, but once saved, always saved. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a horrific, horrific reality. And that's, what, uh, that, that's one of the things that, that no matter what happens, even if abortion is completely uh, outlawed in the United States of America, uh, that doesn't mean that we need to stop preaching and teaching about those issues behind abortion. We need to continue uh, doing that into the future. Yeah.
1: Wow. And, and I feel that, you know, th- this is not in our script, but but as a pastor, I feel the weight of that to make sure that our churches are places of grace. Um, mm-hmm. So, so that there's not that element of shame that comes when, you know, when, when a teenage girl gets pregnant, that we're not yep. heaping shame on that family to, to yeah. drive them to, Abortion clinic. Yeah. Um, um, all right. So, so here recently we've seen uh, three or four kind of consecutive rulings in, in favor of religious liberty by the Supreme Court. Uh, the most recent one being the the Masterpiece Cake Shop ruling. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so does this pattern? Does this make you hopeful about the future of religious liberty in, in the courts here in the United States? Or how how, how do you respond to those uh, kind of seemingly pro-religious liberty um, rulings?
2: Well, I mean, the Masterpiece Cake uh, ruling was a, uh, a good ruling. A necessary, if it had gone the other way, it would have been bad. But uh, it was a very narrow uh, ruling. And, and some people, uh, when they would see headlines saying a narrow ruling, would say, well, how could, how could you say that's narrow? It's seven to two. Yeah, right. well, it's not talking about how many people are voting for it. It means what's the reasoning uh, behind it, which is really important in terms of setting precedent, and the reasoning behind the masterpiece uh, cake decision was the fact that the Civil Rights Commission in Colorado was uh, hostile uh, openly hostile uh, to religious faith in, in ways that uh, that kind of throws it back to start all over again, so that could go in any number of directions from from here, so, but it 's a good a good starting place. Um, I I have ambivalent views toward the future of religious liberty as I have all along, uh, because I think the, the primary uh, threat to religious liberty is actually not specific court cases that are happening right now as important as those are. The primary threat to religious liberty is the idea that religion is itself a means to an end. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a secularizing American culture that, uh, is, is more and more distant from the, the way that religion, uh, affects the conscience and they start to think, well, religion is just about economic power or political power, or tribal power, or social power, or whatever. Uh, then, uh, religion is going to be more and more restricted uh, in terms of of liberty. So I mean you think about it in terms of um, in terms of the LGBT uh, conversation, it's not just that you have people saying, well, this is wrong that uh, evangelicals and Roman Catholics believe the way that they do uh, when it comes to human sexuality. It's also that uh, that secular people largely think, that religious people believe that way because they're trying to win some sort of culture war, and the religion is the way that they do it, rather than seeing these cultural skirmishes as coming out of what's most important, which is the the religion itself. So when that starts to happen, uh, then you're going to have really, really difficult uh, religious liberty uh, uh, skirmishes in the years ahead, which is why we have to do a number of things. One of them is to be totally consistent when it comes to religious freedom, which as Baptists, that's our, our heritage anyway. That's a, a critical part of our, our distinctive confessional uh, faith, but also to be articulating not only what we believe, but why we believe it. So that, uh, so that to say, well, you know, if you're asking us uh, to sort of take this, this Jenga piece of human sexuality out what you're doing is not just nudging us along to where we're going to be anyway. You're actually taking away something that is that is essential uh, to, to what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. In the same way that when you have uh, other governments around the world that will come in and say, well, uh, we're fine with people being Jewish, but we're not going to allow circumcision. Uh, well, I- I- if you remove Uh, circumcision, then you're, you're actually outlawing Judaism. Uh, And so we have to articulate that and show why that's the case, even with people who don't agree with our, our, um, our beliefs, but to say, here's what we believe and here's why we believe.
0: And in light of all of that, is there anything uh, facing the future of our churches that our listeners should have on their radars? Maybe things like tax issues for pastors or churches themselves, freedom of speech, anything like that?
2: Well, there, there are going to be uh, continuing sorts of struggles when it comes to uh, tax exemption, not only for, for churches, but also there's a, there's a move in American life. Uh, to cap charitable giving, uh, to, to to deal rather harshly with non-governmental uh, sorts of organizations across the board, um, and that's largely because people don't understand what these organizations and associations do and why people support them, and and assume well the government can just handle all of this, and and the government does handle all of this. They they assume, which is just not not the case. That's going to continue to be. Uh, an issue, but i 'm frankly more worried uh, when it comes to religious liberty about what happens on the local level uh, when it comes to for instance zoning uh, issues and land use issues and uh, prison ministry issues. those things are going to continue to be really really critical, and what happens as it applies to higher education, uh, whether or not uh, whether or not religious institutions are actually able to be religious, and then uh, with that, I would say uh, military chaplaincy uh, is going to be something to watch very, very carefully, uh, because a lot of the biggest religious liberty skirmishes that we happen right now, we have right now, are happening there, in places that people just don't don't see or or even recognize. Yeah.
1: And and as the uh, as as a pastor of a, a church in a military community, I, I echo that one. As yeah. well, talking with some of the chaplains here and seeing the way that they're kind of being restricted. So, um, and that actually leads right into the next question. So, uh, many of our listeners are pastors, just like us, um, who are serving in churches that are plateaued or, or maybe even declining. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how can how can
2: we pastors of local churches benefit from the work that ERLC does? Well. One of the things that we, we seek to do is, to, is a number of things. One of them is to help you uh, keep abreast of what's going on uh, in, the, in the culture around you um, in terms of a Christian perspective. The other that I actually think is more important is helping you to think through the issues that are on the way. Uh, so I often tell people the most difficult uh, ethical issues uh, that your church faces are not the things that people are debating on Facebook. Uh, the things that people are debating on Facebook right now are usually very ephemeral. Uh, they, they're things that are, it, it's Facebook debates are, are just like playing Candy Crush uh, or something. They're ways that people are, that uh, <laughs> they're kind of using these, these avatars of, of debate really just to say, hey, here's who I am. I want you to know who I am. That's not what's really going to be important uh, for for you for the future. what's important are those things that are uh, either that we have so already accommodated to, that we don't even see and we don't even know that they're there, or the things that are uh, they're, they're just far enough out ahead of us that we't we don't, we don't uh, see them, and if you even start talking about it, it sounds as though you're talking about something weird and science fictiony, but you think about it. I mean, Roe versus Wade we talked about a few minutes ago. When Roe versus Wade was handed down, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention was on board, and not just oh well, some liberal bureaucrats in the Southern Baptist Convention. No, the the conservative, uh, populist, grassroots level of Southern Baptists were with this. Why? Because uh, for a long time, there had been no conversation about abortion because we just assumed that's just not the sort of thing that happens uh, with us. This happens in rural northern areas where we weren't weren't at the time. Uh, And then also because everything was framed in terms of the Roman Catholic Church is the big threat and so we're constantly trying to defend against the Roman Catholic Church to the sense that there was this reflexive, well, the Catholics are for this. So uh, so so we're not Catholics are, are pro-life. And so we're we're not. That was the, the mentality. And so when Roe versus Wade was handed down, uh, conservative evangelicals weren't ready for it. They didn't have the resources uh, to deal with it. Well, now we're in the exact same situation. Not as it applies to abortion, but as it applies to uh, things like uh, in vitro fertilization and uh, advanced uh, artificial reproductive technologies uh, and the the transgender uh, question in terms of some of the specifics of it. And then what worries me the most are issues of technology that are, are coming down the, the pike that if you start talking about them right now, um, what's happening in artificial intelligence, uh, those sorts of questions. We have to be the people who are preparing our churches to even know what it means to be human.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and, and and that is going to be something that your um, children, grandchildren, great grandchildren are going to be facing in ways that frankly, if you were to uh, outline them right now uh, would seem Maybe even magical or or witchcraft. But 20 years ago, having a little uh, a little box in your pocket that could connect you immediately to virtually any source of information in the world would have seemed like witchcraft. Yeah, yeah. It,
1: was, it was it was Dick Tracy stuff of stuff of comic
2: books. Yeah, oh, not even yeah. that. I mean, Dick Tracy didn't even have. Uh, any a little bit of this technology there's jack kirby um uh, did the the new gods uh uh run comic book run back in the early 1970s with the idea of the mother box uh and you, you look at it now you look back you say hey the mother box kind of was a uh an iphone you know <laughs> uh but, but not as good <laughs> as what we have. Well, well, we're sort of here, perhaps,
0: because of that shiny, bald guy's head standing before <laughs> thousands of people, introducing himself as Kyle, non-alcoholic. Well, actually, he I didn't say that, did that part. No, but uh, that. but as the, uh, in, in true Wiley fashion, as a co-host of Not Another Baptist Podcast, to mm-hmm. ask you a question, and then we all know, because we won't let him live it down, he failed to ask you a question. So though it is my turn, I'm going to defer my final question to Mr. Forgots to Ask a Question himself and ask this one of utmost importance.
2: It's a do-over oh, for him.
1: All uh, right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, Dr. Moore, you and I both share an affinity for Johnny Cash. And yeah. um, so I'm curious, what is your favorite Johnny Cash album, if you have one?
2: Oh, man, that's a hard one to say. Um, I I would, I really, uh, I mean, I like everything, everything that Johnny Cash did, except for that really goofy, silly phase that he went through in the late 1970s, early 1980s, where he was just trying to fit in with what Nashville wanted from him. Uh, But I have a special place in my heart those those later uh, American uh, recordings mm-hmm. that he did and, and the reason for that I think is because there was a a vivid sort of vulnerability uh, in someone who is is aging and at the point of of death sort of reflecting on his life so when he did that cover of nine inch nails hurt oh, uh, and especially the video I mean there, there's just a a sense in which seeing that is almost—it's almost what he was trying to do with Belshazzar uh, when he's he's singing about the hand on the wall from the Book of Daniel earlier. But this actually gave the visceral feel of that—that that your 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 days are your days are numbered. Um, I I have a special place in my heart for those.
0: See, Kyle, how how hard <laughs> was that? <laughs> Kyle,
1: well,
2: and, and, and i'll i'll share mine so
1: so my I, I go back and forth um i love his at madison square garden mm-hmm. album. um he's at the pinnacle of his career he's yeah. he's sober um outstanding performance and then uh v h one did a live c d with uh, oh with Billy Cash
2: nelson. And nelson oh just that's the, that's one of the best j- just that, the two of them with their
1: guitars and
2: absolutely this. if if i had if i had um I came up with a list of albums that I would have on a desert island, and that VH1 Storytellers <laughs> yep. album is yep. one of them, yep. uh, for sure. And and so then I'm going to follow up. Do
1: you have uh, Do you have a favorite piece of Johnny Cash memorabilia in in your collection?
2: Yes, I do. Uh, I have here in my office. Um, uh, several years ago, my interns, when I was at Southern uh, for my um, for my, I think it was my birthday or maybe my anniversary as dean. Uh, gave me a, a harmonica that had belonged to Johnny Cash wow. uh, that that he that he used and that he signed, and so I have that uh, I have that here in the office. I also have a drum head that my uh, colleague at Southern Herschel York gave to me from the Highwayman tour that is signed by Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, uh, Chris Christopherson, and Waylon Jennings. Wow! So I love uh, that's. Uh, I love that as well. And my my book that's coming out this fall. The guy that did the cover design um, is a, a guy who works for the Johnny Cash uh, home. And this artist, and he did this really. I, I really like the, the the artistic piece that he did. But he did the waves with a cut up piece of one of Johnny Cash's shirts.
1: This
2: is cool cool little (laughs) Easter egg that that he threw in there. Cool,
0: and it's now a good time to say that I've never listened to an Johnny Cash. Oh man, get on
2: board!
1: Come on, Hensley. (laughs) And man, yeah, and and I figured your memorabilia would would beat mine. I um I found a copy of uh, "I Was There When It Happened" by Marshall Grant at a used bookstore in in Arkansas that was signed. Oh So so I ended up getting that uh, just a couple of months ago. So that that's that's awesome. my current favorite piece of uh, Johnny Cash memorabilia. That's awesome. But, uh, that's great. Well, my
2: wife will will um, my wife would be able to test it, but when I say I like those older uh, sort of uh, looking at at the vapor of life sorts of albums, she would say that's perfectly consistent because if you look at my music that's played, you know now we have devices that tell you how often things. Johnny Cash actually is not the most often listened to artist that I have. Most listened to artists that I have in my life is actually Jimmy Buffett. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Maria will say to, my wife will say to people, if you want to understand Russell Moore, then what you have to understand is, his his most often listened to artist is Jimmy Buffett. But the Jimmy Buffett songs that he listens to uh, the most are not the sort of fun Caribbean uh, Margaritaville sorts of songs. They're uh, Jimmy Buffett's um, songs about death, (laughs) (laughs) death (laughs) of an unpopular poet and a pirate looks at 40s. There's something in there that's, that's uh, explanatory. I don't know what it is.
0: (laughs) Well, and uh, I think that's, that's all that we have for you, and, and as I said, I know you've got a busy day we've got a little outro and intro that we'll throw on there, and okay. uh, not a hundred percent sure when this will go live, but i'll I'll give Josh a heads up and uh, okay. maybe okay. give you all some some things that you can share uh, if great. if y'all would like, but we genuinely appreciate it oh, uh, absolutely. everything this is that. Great. That Kyle said, uh, even without his question, uh, we both wholeheartedly (laughs) agree with. We're grateful for you, grateful for the work you do. And, uh, and I think this will be very helpful for
2: our listeners. Well, thanks. Thanks for letting me get to talk to you all today.
0: Well, as much as I don't want to, it's time to hop off the train. So thanks for taking the time to listen in today. And if you haven't, be sure to subscribe on iTunes. And if you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review so we can keep these things coming. You can also visit us online at www.notanotherbaptistpodcast.com or on Facebook under Not Another Baptist Podcast or on Twitter. Twitter at nab underscore podcast send us out kb kb, until- <laughs> K-B.
1: whatever your I- name is bald guy I- defend defund until next time may your coffee be as black as night and as bold as the gospel you declare